Part One, Chapter Fifteen of Recollections of the Revolution and the Empire. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. Chapter Fifteen, Seventeen Ninety Four. Decision to Leave France. However, the situation became more alarming from hour to hour. Not a day passed without executions. I was lodged sufficiently near the Place Dauphine to hear the drum, the roll of which marked each head that fell. I could count them before the evening papers told me the names of the victims. The window of my room looked out on the garden, the end of which touched an old church in which was established the Club of the Amis du Peuple. And when the evening session was animated, the applause and vociferations of the miserable creatures who were present reached even to my room. The news which I received to my husband depicted his situation at Tesson as most precarious. At every moment, Grégoire was menaced with the establishment in the chateau of a body of troops or a military hospital, or something similar, which would have obliged my husband to flee again. I did not know of any other place where he could be in greater security. I could not think of recalling him to Bordeaux near me, on account of the girl who took care of my child. I had been told again that it was impossible to trust her. Nevertheless, I did not dare to send her away for fear of worse. Another circumstance had proved to me that I was not forgotten at Bordeaux as much as I had hoped. My man of affairs had written me from Paris that a law had just been adopted requiring certificat de residence with nine witnesses, and that it was necessary to renew these certificats every three months, under pain of the confiscation of the property which you possessed in the communes where you did not reside. I had a house at Paris, occupied by the Swedish ambassador, and an income from the state, which had already been reduced by a third. It was therefore necessary for me to obtain this certificate. Bonny took charge of getting together the nine witnesses, none of whom had ever seen me in their lives, but who were willing to believe his word. By arrangement, we went to the municipality one morning. Here I was seated near the fire while Bonny had the act drawn up and obtained the signatures of the witnesses. Finally, the moment for me to sign arrived, and the municipal officer, with a kind of respect which astonished me, gave me a chair to use while signing. Then, to my great alarm, the certificate was read from one end to the other in a loud voice, and at the name of Dylan. One of these rascals interrupted by saying, Aha, the citizeness is apparently sister or niece of all the emigres of this name whom we have upon our list. I was going to reply in the negative, when the head of the bureau said brusquely, You do not know what you are talking about. She is not even their relative. I looked at him in surprise, and he said to me in a low tone while giving me the pen to sign, you are the niece of the Archbishop of Narbonne. I am from Sorez. I thanked him with a slight inclination of the head, but I thought as I went away that it was necessary to leave Bordeaux since I was so well known. I felt at the end of my resources. I saw that Bonny was 
disturbed over my fate. Several means of escape had been recognised as impossible. Every day someone was executed who had thought he was in safety. My nights were passed without sleep as I thought at every noise that they were coming to arrest me. I hardly dared any longer to leave the house. I was afraid of falling sick at the moment when I never had greater use for my health, in order to be strong enough to act if this was found necessary. Finally, one morning, going to see Monsieur de Boucan, who was still under arrest at his house, I was leaning pensively upon the table when my eyes were mechanically drawn to a morning paper which was open. Here I read under the commercial news, The ship Diane of Boston, 150 tons, will leave in eight days in ballast with the permission of the Minister of Marine. Without saying a word, I immediately got up and was leaving when Monsieur de Bourgogne raised his eyes and said, Where are you going then so quickly? I am going to America, I replied as I went out. I went directly to see Madame de Fontenay, whom I advised of my resolution. She approved of my plan, especially as she had just had bad news from Paris. Tallien had been denounced there by his colleague, and was likely to be recalled at any moment. This recall, she thought, would probably be the signal for a new outbreak of cruelty at Bordeaux, where she herself did not wish to remain if Tallien left. It was therefore not a moment to lose if we wished to be saved. I returned to my house and called Bonny, to whom I said that it was necessary to find me a man in whom he had confidence to go in search of my husband. He did not hesitate a moment. He said, The commission is perilous, but I know a man who can undertake it, and that man is myself. He assured me that he would succeed, and I had confidence in his zeal and his intelligence. He hazarded his life, which would have been sacrificed with that of my husband if they had been discovered, but as in this case my own would not have been spared, I did not feel any scruples in accepting his proposition. I did not lose an instant. I went to find an old ship-owner, a friend of my father's, who was also a ship-broker. He was very devoted to me and agreed to go and arrange passage on the Diane for myself, my husband and our two children. I should have liked to take Marguerite with me, but for a period of six months already she had had a double intermittent fever, and no remedy seemed to cure her. I was afraid that a sea voyage at this bad season of the year, as we were in the last days of February, might be fatal to her. I therefore resolved to leave without her. When I returned to see Monsieur Bruquin, having already arranged everything, his surprise was very great. He then told me that he had just been restored to liberty by an order from Paris, and that he was counting on leaving in several days. He proposed to me to go the following day to Canol for luncheon, to which place he had not returned since the visite domiciliaire. Once more at my own residence, I placed my confidence in my good Zamor, for the most difficult thing was to arrange to pack our effects without the knowledge of the maid 
who would immediately have denounced us to the section. She slept with my little girl, then six months of age, in a long room lined with wardrobes, in which I had placed all the things which had been sent me from Le Bouille, as well as those which I had brought from there myself when I came to take up my residence at Canole. This room was between my own and that of Marguerite. The latter had an exit on a little staircase which descended to the cellar. Fortunately, having no confidence in this maid, I had always kept the wardrobes closed. I therefore arranged with Samoa that on the following morning, while I was at Canole, where I would take with me the maid and the children, he should get out all my things and take them down to the cellar by the little stairway, and there pack them in the boxes which he would find. I especially charged him not to leave on the floor even a piece of thread, the sight of which might reveal to the maid that the wardrobes had recently been opened. He executed this commission with his usual intelligence. The next day I went, in company with Monsieur de Chambeau, to luncheon at Canole at the house of Monsieur de Bourcon. While we three were at table, the gate of the garden opened, and we saw Madame de Fontenay enter on the arm of Talien. My surprise was very great, as she had not told me of her plan. Brocan was stupefied, but soon recovered himself. As for myself, I endeavoured to conceal my emotion at the sight of a man who had entered behind Talien. He had placed a finger upon his lips on looking at me, and I immediately turned my eyes away. This was Monsieur de Jumelac, whom I knew well, and who, concealed at Bordeaux under another name, accompanied Talien. The latter, after a polite remark to Brouquin regarding the liberty which he had taken to pass through his garden to go to the house of the Swedish consul, came to me, with the polite bearing of a seigneur of the ancien corps, and said to me in the most gracious manner, I am told, madame, that I am in a position today to repair my faults with regard to you. I am entirely at your disposal. Accordingly, laying aside the air of cold disdain which I had formerly assumed towards him, with an expression sufficiently polite, I explained that having some pecuniary interests at Martinique, I desired to go there to look after my affairs, and that I would like to ask him for a passport for myself, my husband, and my children. He replied, But where, then, is your husband? I said, laughing, Permit me, citizen representative, not to tell you. As you wish, he said gaily. The monster was very amiable. His beautiful mistress had threatened to see him no longer if he did not save me, and this menace had enchained his cruelty for the moment. After several minutes of conversation, they spoke of going to the house of the Swedish consul, I excused myself from going under the pretext that I must look after my children, whom the maid had brought to Canole. But Madame de Fontenay, looking at me with her big black eyes, said, Venez donc! And I understood with horror what was about to happen. She herself took the arm of Monsieur de Bourquin, and Talien offered me his. 
I do not know how to express what I felt at this moment. If only my own life had been in question, and if that of my husband had not depended upon my taking the arm which he offered me, I should have refused. I therefore accepted, and took advantage of the moment to arrange my affair definitely. The poor Swedish consul and his charming daughter were more dead than alive at receiving this amiable visit from the representative of the people. We entered the billiard-room, where Tallien played two or three games, including one with poor Bruquin, who missed nearly all his strokes, and though he was a very good player. Finally, Tallien declared that he had an engagement, and that he was obliged to leave. He took out his watch and looked at the time. "'You have there a pretty watch?' said Madame de Fontenay. "'Yes,' he replied. "'It is one of the new watches of Breguet, and is worth from seven to eight thousand francs. Would you like to have it?' he added, in offering it to her. "'Ah, merci,' she said, as if he had offered her a flower. And taking the watch, she put it in her bag. This incident caused me a profound disgust, for it was the act of a corrupted courtesan. This visit finished, we returned Bruquin and I to Canol, where Monsieur de Chambeau had concealed himself upon the arrival of Tallien. When we were alone, the alteration in the face of Bruquin struck me. He threw himself upon a sofa in a great state of agitation, and in reply to my question as to the cause of his trouble, he said, Alas, you saw the watch which was given by Tallien to Madame de Fontenay? Well, it belonged to Sage, the name of the former mayor of Bordeaux, an intimate friend of Bruquin, and one of the first victims of the terror at Bordeaux. When he was condemned, he placed this watch upon the desk of the tribunal, saying, Take it. I do not wish to have the executioner profit by it. And Tallien took it and put it in his pocket. It is easy to comprehend the repulsion which this recital inspired in me. I would like to believe that the citizeness Theresia was ignorant of this fact when she accepted the present. Two hours after my return to Bordeaux, Alexandre, the secretary of Tallien, brought me the order enjoining upon the municipality of Bordeaux to deliver a passport to the citizen Latour and his wife with two young children to go to Martinique on board the ship Diane. Once furnished with this precious paper, it only remained for me to recall my husband to Bordeaux, for the American captain would not have been willing to take him on board if these papers had not been in order. This journey from Tesson to Bordeaux was full of difficulties and dangers. As I have already said above, Bonny did not hesitate a moment, and set out for Blay with the falling tide. He had already procured a regular passport for himself, for without that he could not leave the department and enter that of the Charente Inferieure, in which was located Tesson, ten leagues from the frontier of the Gironde. But as soon as he returned to the Gironde, a simple carte de sûreté would be sufficient for him to travel anywhere in the department. 
Bonny had indeed his personal carte de sûreté, but it was necessary to procure one for my husband. He therefore went to find one of his friends, who for the moment was sick, and under the pretext that he had mislaid his own card, he borrowed the card of his friend for several days. Bonny set out that evening. I had calculated the moments that would be necessary to accomplish this perilous journey, and the third day, towards nine o'clock in the evening, I thought that the boat which came every day from Blay with the tide would bring to me the travellers so anxiously awaited. The fever of impatience which devoured me would not permit me to remain in the house. With Monsieur de Chambeau, I went upon the Chartrand to the place where I knew the Blay boat should arrive. The darkness was so profound that it was impossible to see the water in the river. I did not dare to ask for any information, as I knew that all the points on the river were observed by numerous police spies. Finally, after a long wait, we heard the clock strike the hour of 9.30, and Monsieur de Chambeau, who had no carte de sûreté, remarked to me that we had only half an hour to return to the house without danger. Having lost all hope for that day, I returned to the house, where I passed the night and imagining with anguish all the obstacles which might have delayed Bonny and his unfortunate companion. While I was trembling thus with anxiety and impatience, my husband was sleeping quietly upon a comfortable bed, prepared for him by Bonny before his departure, in one of the unoccupied rooms of the house. In the morning, the maid, when she came to dress my little girl, said to me, with an indifferent air, A propos, madame, Monsieur Bonnet est là, qui demande si vous êtes levé. I made a prodigious effort not to cry out, and the reader can understand that my toilette was not long. Bonnie then entered, and informed me that they had arrived too late at Blay to take the ordinary boat, upon which my husband also might have been recognised. He had chartered a fishing bark, and the wind being favourable and very strong, he had set out with his companion and soon overtaken and then passed the ordinary boat. They had therefore already arrived when I was waiting for them in a state of despair upon the bank of the river. I was dying with impatience to enter the room where my husband was concealed, but Bonnie advised me to dress as if I were going out, so as to deceive the maid. Finally, a half-hour later, I went out, under the pretext of doing some shopping, and, Bonnie having rejoined me, he conducted me by a secret staircase to my husband's room. It was thus that we met, after six months of the most painful separation. End of Part 1, Chapter 15